0: Let's get into it. Hey there friends, hope you're doing well. Today we are going to be doing something that I've been wanting to do since the beginning, the inception of this podcast. Another solo deep dive on a record that I think a lot of us that are fans of the pop punk genre and even the emo genre are familiar with. We're going to be doing a deep dive of the self-titled album by legendary band Blink-182. I kind of went back and forth on which album I wanted to do first, but I feel like this one is a really compelling, fascinating and interesting one to talk about just because of the story behind it, the lead up to making it, the tumultuous times that the band was experiencing the years before and then many to come afterwards. But either way, we still have this album, this seminal album from this legendary band, Blink-182. And I think this album has really stood the test of time in many ways, and it's also cemented and stamped itself into pop culture especially around the early 2000s i think the memes definitely lend to the idea that there's still a bit of a cultural phenomenon going on with this record and this band and so we're gonna get right into it The self-titled record by American punk band Blink-182 was released on November 18th, 2003 by Geffen Records. So this was after MCA dissolved and became No More. So Geffen released it. Following the ascent to stardom for many years at this point and success of their two previous releases, the trio was compelled to take a break and subsequently participated in various side projects. So of course you had Boxcar Racer, you had The Transplants, Which was the side project with Travis Barker and Tim Armstrong from Rancid, but you also had Plus 44 that came right after this record, as well as Angels and Airwaves. Before they released the self titled record, when they regrouped, they felt inspired to approach song structure and arrangements differently, and you can hear it on the record, and they wanted to do this together. They wanted it to be a group effort. It was recorded from January to October 2003 with producer Jerry Finn. Rest in peace. The album has been described as darker and more mature than the band's earlier work. And I think just listening to it, you can tell if you're familiar with the rest of their catalog. It also marked a musical departure from their previous efforts, in many ways infusing experimental elements inspired by lifestyle changes. The band members all became fathers right before this album was released. I think the side projects also played a role in the experimentation of this record. They were definitely accustomed to their usual pop punk sound, but I think they wanted to test the limits a little bit with this record. And that's, seems to be the theme in a lot of the interviews that you see with Mark, Tom, and Travis around this time. The self-titled songs are sonically expansive and downcast, leading critics to view it as more of an elaborate, mature side of the band. The songwriting is more personal in nature and explores some darker territories, touching upon the realities of adulthood and unexpected hardships that the band members face themselves. In addition, its recording process was long and in many ways unconventional, and we're going to talk about that. I I think around this time in 2003 beginning of 2004 fans were digesting this record i think fans were generally split regarding the band's new direction up to that point but the album did prove to be incredibly successful it sold 2.2 million copies in the united states it received positive reviews and critics welcomed its change in tone lead singles feeling this and i miss you received the most radio airplay out of the four singles released and peaked high on the billboard charts the worldwide touring. Schedule, which saw the band travel to Japan and Australia, also found the three performing for troops stationed in the Middle East. The album was the band's last recording with longtime producer Jerry Finn, unfortunately, and their final original material before a four year long hiatus. And I don't know why, but it seems longer than four years, that stretch of time. But yeah, I guess it was just four years long. Okay. So, some of the background on the record leading up to it Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, the album before this, became Blink 182's first number one album in in the United States upon its June 2001 release. It also hit the top position in Canada and Germany. Hit singles like The Rock Show and First Date continued the band's mainstream success worldwide with MTV cementing their image as video stars. However, guitarist Tom DeLong, good old Tom DeLong, felt as though his creativity was stifled by label limitations. Sessions became contentious among the trio at this time. They rescheduled European tour dates in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks, and they were called off a second time after DeLong suffered a herniated disc in his back. If you watch interviews with Tom, he often talks about his back surgeries and how he's had problems with his back, and he always ascribes it to how he held his guitar and how he played his guitar and how he had his mid-back rounded all the time. With time off from touring, DeLong felt an itch to do something where he didn't feel locked into what Blink was, and I'm assuming that means the the popier punk sound. He wanted to do something different, and obviously he did, with Boxcar Racer. In many ways, I think he channeled his chronic back pain and resulting frustration into the Boxcar Racer record. Some might call it a post-hardcore disc that further explores his fugazi and refused-like inspirations. Refraining from paying for a studio drummer, he invited Blink drummer Travis Barker to record the drums for the project. I didn't realize that. That's kind of cool. He didn't want to pay a session drummer, so he just asked, I don't know, the best drummer of all time. Boxcar Racer, intended as a one-time experiment Project became a full-fledged band with Barker behind the kit and Hazen Street guitarist David Kennedy on guitar. And David Kennedy and Tom are good friends; they grew up together. Blink bassist Mark Hoppus did feel slightly betrayed and jealous, and it would create an unresolved tension within the trio that followed the band for several years after. At the end of 2001, it felt like Blink 182 had broken up. It wasn't spoken about, but it felt as if it were over. Said Mark Hoppus. Barker, meanwhile, joined rap rock group Transplants in 2000. 2000- 2002 and was featured on their first album titled Transplants. In addition, Blink-182 co-headlined the Pop Disaster Tour with Green Day alongside opening acts Jimmy Eat World Saves the Day and Cut You Up in 2002. And if you want to hear a really great story, go back and listen to the episode that I did on my story with that particular tour. It's a fun one. So the Pop Disaster Tour, they're doing that. In many accounts, it was an uncomfortable time in the band, according to Hoppus. But they had hundreds of discussions about it and seemingly moved on. Barker felt the dynamic Mix of the band changed with Hoppus and DeLong's marriages. Blink-182, this is in quotations, this is his quote, Blink-182 were no longer just three inseparable guys who were touring together, end quote. Meanwhile, he began dating model Shanna Molecler, inviting tabloid attention, adding to the awkwardness, quote-unquote awkwardness, present in the band. The post-hardcore sound of Boxcar Racer inspired the change in tone and experimental nature that the band then approached the self-titled album with. Mark Hoppus described his desire for the album to expand experiment with different arrangements in a 2002 interview, and this is his quote, before we got one guitar sound that we changed a little bit through the record, before we got one guitar sound that we changed a little bit through the record, this time we wanted to try a whole different setup for each song, end quote. Hoppus recalled that Travis Barker entered the production process by urging the band to, quote, not think of the album as the next Blink-182 record, think of it as the first Blink-182 record, end quote. The members were also inspired by hearing Houston, We Have a drinking Problem by Bad Astronaut and it's expansive sound and that's a classic record good old Joey Cape that was an amazing record quote once the door was opened by Tom and Travis with Boxcar Racer Mark started to be more on board with that concept he was also more flexible and the next Blink album was able to be a pretty big departure from the previous two end quote said assistant engineer Sam Bogus quote Boxcar Racer opened the door in that sense and I think the three of them wanted to be more creative and have more creative liberty on the following album and quote and obviously that was the case I think not only they had more time but yeah they had created two pop punk masterpieces at that point with enema and take off your pants and jacket it was a smart move of them to expand their sound a little bit to try something plus the nature of music and the landscape of music was changing a lot around that time you had emo kind of exploding post hardcore was getting really really popular so next I want to talk a little bit about the recording and the production of the record in January 2003 Blink 182 rented a home in the San Diego luxury community of Rancho Santa Fe, planning to record the entire album there. In addition to the home being converted into a studio, pay-per-view pornography was on continuous play, and it included a space to smoke hella weed in the garage, apparently. (laughs) Okay, I have a feeling that's not true. The trio ditched their typical previous recording process is writing and demoing several songs and recording them in a studio, one instrument at a time, and instead approached each song together. The band attacked each song and worked on three to four songs per day, simply moving on to the next one when feeling burned out on a track, on a particular track. So they'd spend a little bit of time working on two or three songs, and then they'd move on. The band also had fun at the home studio. DeLong commented, If I wasn't smoking half of Columbia, I probably ran out $3 And adult film charges. So, Blink still had their, even with a darker tone and even with more seriousness, clearly Blink was still being silly and embracing their sillier and comedic leanings. The band recorded at the home until April 2003 when the owners of the house essentially kicked them out. Travis Barker, unwilling to leave Shanna, would drive from Los Angeles to San Diego each day. He subsequently left that spring to tour with the transplants, leaving the band with a variety of drum tracks to listen to while he was gone. The band regrouped after being kicked out by the owners of the house. They were recording in and began recording at Rolling Thunder Studios until the band left to perform a couple of summer shows in Canada and Japan where they premiered several of the new songs live. The in-studio antics and behind-the-scenes moments were recorded and posted on the official Blink website throughout 2003 as well as on a MTV album release segment. And if you go to YouTube, just look up Blink in the Studio 2003 and you'll be able to see plenty of footage of them recording this record. And it's really a lot of fun to watch. And it's fascinating to watch their process because this is i think the most they had documented their recording process up to this point. The recording process of the album eventually lasted from January to August 2003 with an additional mixing and mastering period lasting until October. Previous Blink-182 sessions were recorded in about 3 months. The band stated that being in a studio longer than 3 months gave them the luxury of experimenting with different methods of writing and playing and recording. I'm sure they were messing around with tones and pedals and all sorts of things. The band built each song with a minute attention to detail. Hoppus described the studio as more of a musical laboratory. They were using over 70 guitars, 30 amps, 40 different snare drums, and up to six drum kits. Various keyboards, turntables, and pianos were used in the album's production, a lot of which came from Finn's personal collection. So Jerry Finn's personal collection was involved there, which is pretty cool. And at this point, Finn was well known for this genre. He was basically a legend at this point. The band had worked with him for two previous album so they definitely felt comfortable with him and that probably lends to the idea of why they felt like they could use him again and really experiment with him. Travis Barker was responsible for the turntables and a copy of Pink Floyd's The Wall and that's included in the interlude. The group also enlisted the help of James Guthrie an engineer behind The Wall. I didn't realize that. That's pretty cool. The trio also sent the Cure frontman Robert Smith the bed track of all of this in hopes he would contribute and Robert Smith makes a guest appearance and recorded his parts in England. The three initially believe their legitimate. See would be in question due to the humor-oriented nature of their earlier recordings, to which Smith responded, quote, nobody knows what kind of songs you were going to write in the future, and nobody knows the full potential of any band. I really like the music you sent me, end quote. That's really cool. So he gave him a shot, and I know that was a big deal for Mark Hoppus because he grew up on The Cure. The band also collaborated with DJ Shadow and Dan the Automator, and Travis Barker desired to work with the Neptunes. Jerry Fent, who had produced the previous two Blink-182 albums, and the Boxcar Racer album, returned to produce the self- titled record, which would be his final collaboration with the band. Unfortunately, he passed away from cancer. As the record neared completion by August of 2003, the band performed for a short time for the armed forces in the Middle East and premiered more new songs at their Reading and Leeds sets. The trio shot small homemade videos for several songs on the self-titled record, as well as the official music video for "Feeling This, the song they picked as the first single, and that was a good idea to pick for the first single. I remember when I first heard it on the radio oh it was a bit of a departure for the band but i like it and that chorus was just undeniably catchy the band spent time to finalize the cd booklet and album artwork in september Mark Hoppus stated that the album was so personal to all three of them that they really wanted to be involved in every aspect of it. So it took them a little bit of time just getting all of the details right in the packaging and the artwork. The release date kept getting missed and pushed back to the point where Jordan Schur, then president of Geffen Records, made calls asking, quote, what is the absolute last possible second that we can turn this thing in and still make our release date, end quote. Tom described the final days of mixing the album as crazy stressful with literally hours to turn the album in to have it come out on time. The album was in production so late that the final mixes were still being judged by Mark, Tom, and Travis the night before the album was sent to the pressing plant. For Barker, he later considered it his favorite time in the band's history, commenting, that was a good time in my life. I was smoking just enough weed and taking just enough pills, end quote. (laughs) Okay. Oh, how wonderfully rock star of him. Talk about his drug use. Okay. So the composition of the record, let's talk about the music and the style. While still rooted in pop punk, the self-titled record finds the band expanding their sonic template with darker and restless songs. The compositions on the record have been described as musically diverse as borderline experimental with sullen moodiness and off-kilter hooks. The bass is for many of the tracks. The record pulls from a variety of styles. Obviously, if you listen to the record. There's a lot to digest with this record, a lot of different dynamics in the record, a lot of different sounds, including post-hardcore electronic rock, jangle pop, and reflective alternative rock. Experimentation was constantly present. The band tried different mic techniques and toyed with harmonium organs, Polynesian gamelan bills, and turntables, all sorts of things. The band infused these experimentalist elements into their usual pop punk sound inspired by lifestyle changes. The band members at this point had all become fathers, and they had worked on side projects. In a full article about the album in November 20th, in the November 20th, 2003 edition of Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Ben Winner described the music of the album as expansive, downcast, and sometimes spectral. The New York Times considered that the album may have been influenced by the growing popularity of emo pop, while all music regarded it a delve into post-punk. Quote, Much of the punk has been dissolved. The buzzsaw guitars faded into the corners, allowing room for staggering dynamics, cathartic guitar bursts, and a weightier, more experimental, ambitious sound. End quote, wrote Tom Bryant of Kerrang! And Kerrang's a magazine in the UK. The goal for Untitled, or Self-Titled, was continuity. Each song develops lyrically like chapters in a book, and songs seg into one another, to present a cohesive feel instead of a regular collection of tracks. And I do think this record, if you listen to it front to back, it actually makes sense. It kind of weaves in and out, but it is kind of a record that's fun to just digest from track one to track 14. In addition to the side projects, the music of the album was inspired by the September 11th attacks and the onset of the Iraq war. The mood was unsettling for Tom DeLonge, whose brother is a Navy officer. This is his quote. It was so weird because we'd all be glued to the TV watching these bombs explode over another country. So I'd see See all this and wonder where he was at, and then we'd have to go to the next room and sing or finish writing lyrics. I think it affected our moods throughout the day. In addition, it was just inspired by socializing. We would just hang out for hours talking. It was really cool. Said DeLong. And this is a long quote, but I'm just going to read it. Travis Barker on the recording process i think the second half of the record being written in la was key in san diego it's very beautiful and rich and everything i don't want to see when i'm writing a record not a punk rock record being in los angeles the heart of fucking street bombs to drug dealers to pimps to fucking gangbangers that gives you inspiration like me sitting in fucking san diego seeing rich people drive their nice cars and go to their nice houses doesn't do shit for me end quote (laughs) Okay. I don't know. Maybe the Beach Boys, like, writing lyrics in San Diego, but not Travis Barker. Okay. The lyrics are some of the band's best, for sure, on this record. Critics agreed that this album represented a more mature, quote, Blink-182, hence the absence of songs with toilet humor or jokes for which the band had been known previously. And I think that was always going to be a part of Blink. That was always going to be a part of their legacy, especially after the live album came out and you got to hear all of their banter. But clearly, they wanted to go in a different direction. Quote, we wanted to be remarked Tom DeLonge. Some of our fans were probably like, fuck, maybe they should stop joking so people could hear why I like this band. And I think this record is going to help those kids out, end quote. In an interview with MTV Album Launch, Mark Hoppus said that the desired effect of the album was for people to listen to it and say, wait a minute, this is Blink-182? The themes for the album include growing up and dealing with the realities of adulthood, including relationship woes, daily pressures, and unexpected hardships. And I would imagine that came with more seriousness in their relationships, getting married. That definitely uh, adds weight and responsibility to an adult life. The album is lyrically consumed with sorrow and uncertainty about the world. Entertainment Weekly described it as a concept album based on a dying relationship. A self-meditation on romantic decay. That was their quote. Quote, I think at this point in our career, we are better musicians and we've evolved our way of thinking as far as songwriting goes. End quote. Tom DeLonge told Billboard in reference to the more mature lyricism. Mark Hoppus, in his interview with the Milwaukee, journal sentinel described the lyrics as the most personal he had written up to that point while past recordings tended to meditate on feelings from high school the band felt it was akin to a safety net and desired to write about what's going on right now lyrics continued to be autobiographical but the band took more time than usual on their writing tom DeLong would routinely rewrite his sections upwards of four times so they were taking this seriously they were definitely trying to level up they didn't want to pull any punches they didn't want to mess around they were trying to do something different and i'm Sure, they were probably beating their heads against the wall. It's kind of what happens when you're trying your best to be creative and really level up. And who knows, they might have been in a situation where they were really overthinking everything that they were doing. I would imagine that's the case. It happens with artists. So, some of the songs, let's just go into the songs. The record opens with the opus Feeling This, which features flanged drums and an unconventional syncopated Latin flavor backbeat and a harmony rich chorus. Following a series of half barked vocals, Feeling This was the first song written written for the album, and it illustrates a scenario of lust, ambivalence, and regret, with a protagonist of the song reflecting over his romance's dimming flame in the chorus. Fate fell short this time, your smile fades in the summer. Mark Hoppus and Tom DeLonge wrote the song in two different rooms, and upon meeting to discuss the song, the two realized they had both written about sex. The passionate, lustful side reflected in the verses, and the romantic side reflected in the choruses. It segs into Obvious, which explores the wall of sound technique and features a brooding heavy intro combined with cascading guitar riffs. The single, I Miss You, is an all-acoustic affair, featuring a melancholy piano, cello, upright acoustic bass, and a brush-stroked hip-hop groove. Don't waste your time on your- me, The song features references to Tim Burton's 1993 animated film The Nightmare Before Christmas with We Can Live Like Jack and Sally and We'll Have Halloween on Christmas. In interviews and the liner notes for the self-titled record, Travis Barker reveals that the line was directed towards his then-girlfriend Shanna. Violence flicks between bizarre spoken jazzy verses and anthemic punk rock choruses with lyrics that equate broken hearts with global violence. And there's definitely some metaphors in there, I'm, I'm assuming. Stockholm Syndrome has been described as the most obvious examples of of Blink-182's experimentation, and it was recorded using a microphone dating back to the 1950s, and the reverb on the vocals was achieved by playing the recordings into a shower. The drum fills for the song were recorded separately than the rest of the tracks, with a tape machine sped up and super compressed, then played back at normal speed to sound really deep and gigantic. According to Mark Hoppus in the liner notes for the record, it features an interlude before it in which Joanne Wally reads letters Mark Hoppus's grandfather wrote to his grandmother during during World War II. That's so crazy. Tom DeLonge explained the letters as real sincere, genuine letters from the worst war in history. Down continues the theme of longing set to a rain-drenched soundscape. The original version of Down ran over six minutes long and contained a drum and bass breakdown from Travis Barker. The fallen interlude, which functions as an outro to Down, finds Barker showcasing different percussive techniques over a funk tense jazz sound. It is a near-instrumental recording with Sick Jack and hip-hop band Psycho Realm. Go is the record's only only straightforward punk rock song. It's a personal song, said Mark Hoppus. It's not specifically about my mother. I feel weird talking about it. <laughs> okay, that's his quote on the song. Go. Asthenia uses real NASA transmissions from the Apollo 9 spaceflight, and I think this is something that gave a bit of inspiration to angels and airwaves. It centers on a fictional astronaut stranded in space, floating in an Apollo capsule, and contemplating whether or not to return to his home planet. It is also the only song in Blink-182's catalog to feature a 3-4 time signature during the bridge, the song was inspired by Tom DeLong's self admitted paranoia regarding the future and how war and famine could affect it. Always features an up tempo backbeat combined with a new romantic era keyboard and pulls from new wave influences. The band often jokingly called the track the 80s song. It contains a riff reminiscent of The Only Ones, Another Girl, Another Planet. Easy Target and all of this were based on a story from producer Jerry Finn's middle school years. Finn was in love with a female classmate, Holly, who invited him over, only to have her and her friend drench him with a hose. Humiliated, he rode home on his bicycle. All of this is a gothic tinged pop song that uses strings and guitar effects to create a moody atmosphere. The track Here's Your Letter, according to Mark Hoppus in the liner notes for Blink. 182, the self-titled record, is about people's inability to communicate with one another and how words and explanations only confuse the issues. It's true. Sometimes words do confuse the issues. I'm Lost Without You mixes an industrial loop with a piano. I'm Lost Without You took many months to create and took over 50 different takes, including two drum sets combined during the last minute of the song. Travis described the idea for the percussion combination as something we always wanted to do but never got around to, and believe the song sounded like a Pink Floyd song or a failure song. And Ken Andrews actually plays some guitar on Obvious, which is insane to me. It's really cool. I didn't realize Travis Barker was such a big Failure fan. He's been posting them a lot on Instagram. The UK edition of the record features a B-side, Not Now, another classic among Blink-182 songs, originally recorded during these sessions. Not Now features a church organ and its verses and guitar riffs reminiscent of the Descendants. And it does kind of sound like a Descendants song. Not really, but you can hear the influence. Its subject matter continues the theme of complicated miscommunication and fading love. Let's talk a little bit about the past packaging in the title. Due to some contradicting sources, the title of the album, or lack thereof, is debated. Travis Barker, in his memoir, Can I Say, writes that some people think it's a self-titled album called Blink-182, but Mark Hoppus has always insisted it was actually untitled. A 2003 interview, an article from MTV News discussing the naming of the pending album, repeatedly refers to the release as the untitled album. So I've already made a mistake in this episode. This is the untitled album, not the self-titled album. Despite this, several critics have used the terms eponymous, untitled, and self-titled in describing the album. In a 2009 MTV News article, James Montgomery refers to the album as self-titled, joking, or untitled. It's never really been clear, end quote. The title for the album was originally rumored to be Use Your Erection 1 and 2, a parody of the Guns N' Roses album Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, but was revealed to be a joke Barker made to get a rise out of people, and clearly they weren't going to go with the joke title this round. They already did that twice before. Tom DeLonge, in reference to to previous joke album titles such as Enema of the State stated, we didn't want to label it with a joke title that people might expect. As such, a Billboard article from the week of the album's release lists three rejected joke titles Diarrhea de Janeiro, Vasectomy, Vesecta U, and Our Pet Sounds. <laughs> Joke titles. To support the new album, Blink-182 created an entirely new logo—a smiley face with X's for each eye and five arrows on the left side of its face. According to Travis Barker, the Blink-182 logo originated at his clothing line, Famous Stars and Straps. Barker wanted to brand an icon for the band. It just had to be a cool kind of happy face, but I wanted arrows. You know, like The Jam or my favorite band—they always had arrows in their logos and stuff. It was just kind of inspired by pop art. End quote. mark Hoppe seconded this. He spearheaded all the artwork for the record. There were smiley face stickers and posters all over Los Angeles, and that was his idea. End quote. Barker invited his tattoo artist, Mr. Cartoon, to create artwork for the record and his good friend Estevan Oriel to handle photography. His style incorporated into Blink's didn't make us too gangster. It just gave us a bit of an edge. This was him talking, Travis Barker. It was cool to feel like Blink had a dangerous side, end quote. Music OMH described the album booklet as, quote, meticulously put together and resembling a Warholian pastiche, end quote. Each song includes small notes detailing the lyrical inspiration for each song, what it means to each band member, and the recording techniques used. And I remember opening this thing up and it really was cool to see all this. I wish more bands would follow suit. If nothing else, just do it online. Create an experience with the art online. The band originally wanted each CD booklet to be made from canvas material. Geffen gave the band a choice between the custom artwork or keeping the sale price down to $12. The band chose the latter as they felt it was more important that young listeners obtain the record for less money. That's funny. When records sold. (laughs) so let's talk a little bit about promotion of the record and some of the singles the untitled album was the band's first release on Geffen and Geffen as I mentioned earlier was absorbed by sister label MCA Records in 2003 prior to it dissolving MCA had attempted to penalize the band for breaking stipulations in their contract that they would have an album out by a specific quarter MCA had previously rushed the band into recording Take Off Your Pants and Jacket but the band had much more freedom with Geffen quote Geffen came down and heard three songs and they said this is the best record you've ever done this is the record of your career take as much time as you want call us when it's done end quote promotion for the record included a golden ticket contest the prize being a private blink 182 show for the winner mtv's website streamed the full album a week before its release which is probably the first time anybody had ever done that a week prior stream of an album and it began on november 10th as promotion for the album and single releases the band performed feeling this on jimmy him alive a week after the release of the album on November 26, 2003, and they also performed "Down" on The Late Show with David Letterman on May 27, 2004. Performances of "I Miss You" and "The Rock Show" on the WB's Pepsi Smash Concert Series from June 10th, 2004, were released on the Australian tour edition of the album as well as the "Always" single. The band picked "Feeling This" as the first single because it was representative of the transition the band had undergone since "Take Off Your Pants and Jacket," and I think. That was a great first single. It opens the album, but obviously the album is good, so it's not just a throwaway song. It's not just the best song on the album, the first one. A slightly different version of the song had been released previously as part of the soundtrack for the video game Madden NFL 2004 under the erroneous title, Action. And you hear a man say Action at the beginning of the song. Travis Barker explained in an interview that Action just sounded kind of dorky to us, to them. Like, we would always call it "Feeling This, and then someone at our label, I think, wrote it down as Action one time and sent out singles to people and it was always supposed to be feeling this the video for feeling this was recorded shortly before the release of the album in october 2003 the track peaked high at number two on the billboard modern rock tracks chart hovering at that position for three weeks i miss you was commissioned as the record's second single in december 2003 when the band recorded a music video for it i miss you became arguably the most successful single from the album becoming blink 182's second number one hit on the billboard modern rock tracks chart during the week of April 3rd, 2004 until dethroned by Hoobastank's The Reason two weeks later. And man, what a gargantuan single that was. I remember watching that video all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Despite briefly considering Easy Target to be released as the album's third single, which I'm glad they didn't, Down was released instead. The video for Down, which features real-life ex-gang members, made its television premiere in June of 2004. The single was a mixed success, peaking at number 10 on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart during the week of July 31st, 2004, but quickly fell off afterwards. Always was announced as the fourth and final single from Blink-182, the self-titled record or untitled record. In August 2004, quote, It's going to change people's lives. It might actually change the world forever, end quote. Tom DeLonge jokingly predicted... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that sounds like a Tom quote. After deciding on the video concept, the clip was recorded and released in November of 2004 and continued success all the way into January 2005. A fifth single from the album, All of This, was discussed. However, plans were dropped following the band's declaration of an indefinite hiatus in the month of February in 2005. In response to the idea of All of This becoming a possible single, Tom DeLong joked, quote, we would have loved it because it's a badass song and the cures Robert Smith sings on it, and that makes us cooler than everybody else, end quote. However, on April 18th, 2020, Mark Hoppus answered a fan on a Twitch stream session and said that the song was never intended to be a single. Okay, still a cool song though. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about the reception of the record, Critical Reception. The album received generally favorable reviews by most music critics. At Metacritic, which assigns a normalized rating out of 100 reviews from mainstream critics, the album received an average score of 71 based on 12 reviews. Reviews. Ginny Eliskew of Rolling Stone, while giving the album four stars, wrote that their lyrics are still unsophisticated and lovelorn, but even the poppiest tunes prove artful, end quote. Her review regards Blink-182, the self-titled record, as more experimental and hard-hitting than anything else the band has done, end quote. It was subsequently included in the top 50 best of 2003 end-of-the-year list by Rolling Stone. The album was given four stars by AllMusic's Stephen Thomas Erewine, who called Blink-182 an unexpected and welcome maturation from a band that just an album ago seemed permanently stuck in juvenilia, end quote. Blender's Jonah Weiner praised DeLong's vocals, describing them as a lean, thrilling ride through adolescent hopelessness, end quote. Many critics expressed surprise at the newfound maturity of the band, and lauded the surprise appearance of the Cure vocalist Robert Smith on the track All of This. The band's decision to favor a more mature sound and just overall more mature material was received positively by many critics. Tim Newbound, of SoulShine Magazine, wrote that, quote, Blink show that they can retain their infectious and endearing qualities while recording music of a more thoughtful caliber, end quote. Spin described the record as emotionally intense and best experienced through headphones. USA Today's Edna Gunderson felt that Blink-182, quote, bravely adheres to a single sober theme, a disintegrating romance through 14 songs that adhere to its pop-punk principles without recycling cartoonish accessories. Blink-182 is growing up, not growing stale, end quote. Quote. and it is a bit of a more grown up record i would say it's definitely a band challenging their limits and trying to grow within their sound but also find their sound nick Cattucci of the village voice called the album brilliant and compared blink 182 to fellow pop punk band green day's 2000 effort warning writing quote let it be noted however that warning searches for subject matter where blink 182 searches for meaning end quote greg cott of entertainment weekly wrote that despite their newfound earnestness the band seem incapable of pretension and In a career littered with songs about awkward moments, their latest is a classic. Scott Shelter of Slant gave the album four stars, stating that, quote, giving up the fart jokes is a risky business for Blink, but Blink-182 might just be the band's, meaning their self-titled or untitled record, the best album to date, end quote. Among the more negative reviews, Jason Arnop of Q felt the majority of the material was forgettable, but commended it as some of their most imaginatively constructed work, end quote. The AV club Stephen Thompson believed the disc does meander in spots, and its most achingly sincere love songs become clear end quote. And I think that's probably upon first listen and then never revisit it again because I think this record gets better the more you listen to it and the more you revisit it and take it in as a whole and really digest it. It's one of those records that I think when I first heard it, I had to work a little bit to kind of understand what they were going for because it was such a departure. The commercial performance of the album was noteworthy. The album debuted at number three on the US Billboard 200 chart with first week sales of 313,000 copies. Wow. Can you remember when Records sold that much in the first week. In comparison, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket debuted at number one and sold more than 350,000 copies in its first week. So, both major successes by any standard. The album charted at number three below fellow new album In the Zone by Britney Spears, which went number one that week, and above the remix album Let It Be Naked by the Beatles, came in at number five. Untitled charted highest in Canada, where it debuted at number one. The album was also successful in other countries, debuting in the top 10 in Australia and New Zealand. The album was certified by the RIAA as platinum for shipments of over 1 million copies in 2004, although it has since sold over 2.2 million copies in the US and 7 million copies worldwide. Wow, a lot of albums. It was certified by both the Canadian Recording Industry Association, the CRIA, and the Australian Recording Industry Association, the ARIA, as double platinum. The album has also reached platinum certifications in the United Kingdom. So the band obviously went on tour. Blink-182 announced the first tour in support of Untitled on October 17, 2003, named the Della Bill Tour. The All Ages Club Tour featured supporting acts Bubba Sparks and the McKinnison, and as the name suggests, tickets were sold for $1. Tom DeLonge explained the first return to small venues in several years in the initial press release for the tour. For years, we played in small clubs, and that's where you can really connect with your fans. That's where I first saw him was in a, a smaller club. The tour ended shortly after the release of the Untitled record on November 21st, 2003, at local San Diego Venue Soma. The Soma. An additional concert at the Phoenix Theater on December 2nd, 2003, was held in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, with My Chemical Romance as the opener. A performance at K Wad's Twisted Xmas show shortly before Christmas 2003 became the final show of the year, and a European tour followed in mid February in 2004. During an Australian tour in March 2004, Travis Barker injured his foot, and the band was forced to cancel tour dates in Japan for the rest of the month. A U.S. tour took place from late April to May 2004. 2004, and a highly publicized tour featuring Blink-182 and No Doubt was performed during June 2004 in support of the Untitled record and No Doubt's The Singles record 1992-2003. The cancelled Australian tour dates were rescheduled and performed in August and September of 2004. So they were touring a lot here. The band appeared on September 17, 2004 at the MTV Icon Tribute to The Cure, performing a cover of A Letter to Elise and All of This, which was recorded and later broadcast on October 31st, Halloween of 2004, the band headed to Europe for a two week tour near the end of the year, which culminated at their final show on December 16th, 2004, at the Point Theatre in Dublin, Ireland. Although the band had planned for a US tour in support of Always, tensions within the band had risen on the final European tour, and the band announced an indefinite hiatus on February 22nd, 2005, as breakup rumors swirled. After touring through 2004, the three essentially stopped communicating with one another, apparently. Mark Abbas had initially had difficulty accepting the group's new direction. After some tragic events involving the band and its entourage, Blink-182 reunited in February 2009, which most people who are fans know. It was after Travis Barker's unfortunate and tragic plane crash where he had a bit of an epiphany while laying in his hospital bed that he wanted to get the band back together. And he talks a lot about that in his book. So there is a bit of a legacy pertaining to the untitled record of Blink-182, one that they released in 2003. The Los Angeles Times referred to Untitled as the band's underrated masterwork, writing that the record is generally considered by fans, critics, and the band members alike as its best work. Blink's Answer to Pet Sounds, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the band themselves have regarded it as a huge turning point in their career, marking a change in the way they write music and record music, as well as view themselves. In his memoir, Can I Say, Travis Barker writes, it had a little bit of everything. We ventured far enough outside our genre to make ourselves happy but not so far that we offended our fan base it was a perfect happy medium and it's the blink album that mark tom and i are most proud of end quote the band celebrated the 10th anniversary of the album by performing it in full in november of 2013 after a pair of hollywood palladium shows sold out in a record 32 seconds the band added three additional dates at the wiltern in los angeles which also sold out mtv news called it a fitting tribute to an album that in the decades since it was first released has become a bit of a touchstone defining moment not just for the band but for the genre of punk and all its permutations end quote john blistane of radio.com called the album an unquestionable masterpiece in the site's not fade away series which examines some of the greatest albums of the past few decades in it he writes on the album's influence untitled was the band's most concise break from the pop punk formula and a catalyst for the wave of pierced hearts stuck sleeves with tears and guyliner emo outfits that rose to popularity in its wake sans the potty humor of course verse including but not limited to Fall Out boy my chemical romance and panic at the disco end quote okay so i remember the first time i heard this record it was a leaked version and this is when big albums like this started to leak because it wasn't a thing for the few years before it and it was actually the first night i ever heard amberlynn the band that i was in at the time we were lucky enough to play or we were opening two dates on the reliant k tour at the end of 2003 and the sound guy was literally playing the new blink 182 maybe three weeks before it came out and i thought to my myself, this sounds like Blink, but it just sounded so much different. It sounded darker and more grown up, and it definitely had some experimental elements. And I remember liking what I heard but I definitely wanted to explore it more with headphones and really listen to the whole thing front to back but I remember hearing him play Stockholm Syndrome and I thought that drum beat in the verse was just so catchy and interesting the way it's kind of reversed and to this day Stockholm Syndrome is still my favorite song from this record I love the really simple melody in the verses from Mark and I remember hearing Tom kind of shouting for the first time and it definitely did have kind of like a refused post-punk element to it but I love his melodies in the song mark in particular and the drumming and just the chord progression how it's still poppy but it's really dark at the same time and the tones they used are just massive i love that song but that's my story later that night i heard one of my other favorite bands amberlin play for the first time because before that i hadn't heard them and i think they had released their first record but that was the first time i was introduced to them good times i think this record without a doubt cemented its place in time and pop culture and blink 182 is definitely a complicated and compelling band to think about. I fell in love with Blink when I first heard Cheshire Cat and Dude Ranch, which was about the same time, right after Dude Ranch came out. And I saw Blink play in Lawrence, Kansas in 1997 for the first time. And I'll never forget it. Definitely one of my favorite bands. I hope you guys enjoyed this deep dive of the untitled record, not the self-titled record, from Blink-182 released in 2003. Give it a spin, revisit it, really listen to it with good headphones and listen to it from the beginning to the end and feel free to reach out to me if you'd like to hit me up and talk about this record i'd love to you can hit me up on the facebook's my name is kyle devlin k-y-l-e-d-e-v v V as in victor l-i-n or you can follow me on instagram my handle is at kyle underscore devlin underscore underscore love to talk to you guys hope you're having a great week and i'll talk to you soon